Hey everyone, this is Matt. I wanted to let you know that this is going to be a two-part episode with part one where we interview Dr. Jeffrey from the American Geriatric Society and part two is the curbsiders and more of a roundtable discussion with some additional topics on polypharmacy. I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's just jump right into it. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. Yeah, see, I was going to trade it up for you. <laughs> the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. Well, hello. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. So good to be back with you guys. <laughs> it's like we haven't talked every day for the past two weeks. Uh, we have not. <laughs> All right, Stuart. You got some listener feedback for us here? Absolutely. I have feedback from a listener. It happens to be listener feedback. Here we go. All right. It says, Hi, guys. Thank you for producing a fantastic show. I had my last day of MS3 on Friday and gave a presentation on prep for my ambulatory rotation. I mentioned your podcast has given me the idea for a topic I've not been exposed to. Received lots of positive feedback from med students who also did not previously know about the topic. Attached is a photo of my special thanks slide to the curbsiders. I love your show. Keep up the great work. Sincerely. Uh, name withheld. Antonietta. <laughs> Again, leave the space in. The listeners love it. <laughs> Just let it marinate. <laughs> All right. And uh, at this point, Paul, how about a pick of the week? I think he's got one. Cue that I music. Oh, that's the good stuff. That is my favorite song, whichever <laughs> it may be. I should, really should listen to an episode sometime just so I can count it on the math <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so your pick of the week is this podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> I recommend the curbsiders. I've heard it's great. <laughs> I've just been ever, if you haven't been listening, Paul, that explains why you haven't confronted me. I just, every time we cut to you, it's just ums and ahs. No, no content. <laughs> just static. <laughs> So (laughs) in keeping with my plan um, to recommend nothing directly relevant to the episode we're talking about, I'm I'm going to I'm going to make a a recommendation that is actually medically oriented for a change, um, but has nothing to do with this episode. And it's going to be a rival podcast. But so just listen to a couple of episodes and then stop. (laughs) But I'm going to recommend the JAMA clinical reviews. Um, And particularly, they did actually did a couple of episodes, 30 minutes long, easily digestible um, on a commute about polypharmacy in the elderly, things like de-escalating antihypertensives and being thoughtful about uh, diabetes management in the elderly in the setting of polypharmacy. And they, they, they do a really excellent job um, of addressing those things. And like I said, it's concise. It's evidence-based. They actually talk about the articles that, that they reference when they make the recommendations. So I, I, it's worth a listen to those two episodes and then again, stop and don't listen again and then revert back to our podcast, which I hear is fantastic. Yeah. That's okay, Paul. I mean, there's plenty of love to go around. Uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure people will come back. I mean, they don't. They don't have a Stuart Kent Brigham on uh, the the clinical reviews, do they? Mm-hmm. Well, not yet. <laughs> uh, my my pick of the week is what is my pick of the week? Oh, yes, I have it. It is also a podcast, and mm. this is this is by Mark Shapiro. 
he is he's an internist and hospitalist. He's practicing in California, I believe, Northern California. He has a podcast called Explore the Space, and he actually, in the near future, will be interviewing the Curbsiders. Uh, not exactly sure when, but we'll be going on his show talking about something. Not exactly sure what, but uh, so he's curbsiding the Curbsiders about curbsiding <laughs> other people. <laughs> yes. I would, I've, I've listened to several of his episodes. He gets really great guests. There was a guest named Elizabeth Rosenthal on there promoting, promoting a book. She's a writer for the New York times. She recently wrote a book kind of talking about healthcare and you know, the, the whole big picture of healthcare. I thought that was a really great interview. He interviewed Z dog MD talking about health 3.0 and he's interviewed Scott Weingart who, who does the MCRIT podcast. I think they're, he, he gets great guests and yeah. it's a, it's a good show. So check it out and, uh, look for us to be on that show sometime in the near future. Right. Speaking about Z, Z dog, when are we going to have him on soon? Right? No, he's way too no? busy for us. Darn it. Okay. So by my awesome deductive reasoning is now my turn. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Wonderful. So what I want to, uh, share this week, have you guys seen this movie? Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. I haven't just, seen any of them. Oh, it's amazing. So, uh, oops, not that one. So my pick of the week is an absolutely campy, disgusting, horrible movie called uh, Sharknado, uh, the, Fourth, the Fourth Awakens. It's an absolutely horrible, horrible, horrible movie. Um, it's meant to be exceptionally campy and just uh, just devoid of any kind of uh, cinematic prowess whatsoever. It's wonderful. Please watch it. Yeah, and if if you also like Campy, you can watch anything by Neil Breen, and I believe his movies are also on YouTube. Uh, you can thank Dr. Paul Williams for that that recommendation are, too. I'm not even Campy; they are just the most gloriously incompetent things you've ever seen. They <laughs> they make the room look like Lawrence of Arabia. They are incredible. Yeah, I, I can't recommend them highly enough. If you have mm. an hour put, to kill, I can put a link to some of his movie trailers, which even just watching those are, are fascinating. I've never seen a full movie by Neil Breen, but what, so, what's uh, the never name mind. of that I my recommendation. Forget Jama. Watch a Neil Breen movie. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it's tastefully done, Paul, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. It's really quite moving. Knowing what I do about Neil Breen. Okay. On this episode, we are excited to bring you a topic that I think is very important mm-hmm. uh, in today's in today's environment, polypharmacy. Not just about multiple pharmacies either. Our guest is Dr. Sean Jeffrey. He's a pharmacist with over 17 years experience in caring for seniors. His training in geriatrics began at Duke Center for the Aging. After that, he joined the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy, where he was on faculty and is currently a clinical professor. He established a geriatric pharmacy consult service when at the VA in Connecticut. And for over 16 years, his work at the VA included caring for home-based primary care, short-term rehab, hospice, geropsychiatry, and geriatric consult service patients. He also established and directed a postgraduate year two geriatric pharmacy residency program. In 2015, Sean joined the Hartford HealthCare's Integrated Care Partners as their director of clinical pharmacy services. He's also a fellow of the American Geriatric Society, and currently he chairs the AGS Polypharmacy Special Interest Group. And the American Geriatric Society was kind enough to set up this interview with Sean to teach us about polypharmacy. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matt. Hi, Stuart. 
Uh, this is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Matt. And we are very happy to have on the show tonight, Dr. Sean Jeffrey. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming on and taking some time out of your night to talk with us and, and educate our audience. Uh, this is certainly an important topic. But before we start with the topic of polypharmacy, I just wanted to ask if you had to describe yourself in kind of a one-liner, the type they use when, you're, when talking about patients in the hospital, how would, you, how would you describe yourself? Good question. So I would say I'm a 44-year-old senior-loving pharmacist married to another pharmacist, a wannabe rock guitarist with an eight-year-old budding artist. Okay. A lot of ists. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it's better than isms, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what's something about yourself that's kind of led you down this, this pathway to success? First of all, um, I appreciate the implication that I'm successful. Uh, secondly, <laughs> I can think of there's a couple of things that I think have been helpful to me in, in reflecting back over where my career has taken me. And, and first and foremost, I've got some really strong family role models. Uh, uh, family role models that were in healthcare and, and others who weren't. Um, for example, my grandfather was a commander of Company K in the 18th Infantry, 1st Division in World War II, and mm. had a chance to chase Rommel across uh, North Africa. And his brother was a naval aviator and one of the first to land on a carrier at night. And they both survived the Depression and the war to become successful leaders in their professions. And that kind of instilled in me a sense of you know hard work and, and having a purpose for what you're doing. And I think that also gave me tremendous butt power. You know, I was able to <laughs> sit myself down and try to figure things out. And it didn't always come easy to me. But, you know, I had that butt power that helped me get through things. And Lastly, I have a wife that makes sure that if my head starts to get too big, that she's quick to let the air out of it. So hmm. I think that's helped to keep me grounded. I have just a couple more questions before we move into the main topic, because I don't want to run out of time on that. Uh, we always ask guests about an app, a medical app that is their favorite. And I'm interested to ask from the pharmacy perspective, what's your favorite medical app? So I would say LexiComp is my uh, favorite app. It's sort of the anxiolytic to my insecurities about not knowing every medication by heart. And uh, that one is a good one, as is Micromedics. Um, they're subscription services, so they may be a little bit more expensive than some people uh, want to spend, but the information is really top-notch. And I think some institutions, uh, you, you probably, if you work for a big university, uh, you can probably get that through your institutional subscription or you should check. So Le you said LexiComp and Micromedics were the two? Yes. Okay. Yeah, those are the two that I use for drug information resources because I know that they've got people behind there vetting the information and they're they're uh, pretty responsible folks. So you're saying uh, in court, Hippocrates might, it might not hold up if you said, uh, I read it on Hippocrates. <laughs> <laughs> I based this life-saving decision on Hippocrates, and I'm not sure, so sure that that's a good one. I got a good book in case somebody hasn't brought it up. Yeah, please go ahead, tell us. So, have you guys heard of Caitlin Dowdy's "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" and other lessons from the crematory? Never. No, sounds very mm -hmm. interesting. Nope. So, so this is a book that really brought the death industry to life for me. Uh, it's sort of the kitchen confidential of the funeral industry, and I think it should be required reading for any physicians, anybody in healthcare, actually. 
you know, we're all going to end up there at some point, one day or another, and you might as well know what it's going to look like at the end. It was actually pretty funny and, and, and eye-opening. It's uh, $7.12 on Amazon. All right, yeah. sir. So we will we'll definitely link to that one in the show notes. I haven't heard of it. I'll have to, I'll have to add it to the list. Uh, curious, curiously, why do you think every physician should read it? What, what, what sort of insights do you think? Well, you know, I think that we know everything up until the point that the person has died, but then we often walk away at that point and aren't as involved in the grief and the grieving and what happens after the person has passed. And it's informative. It helps me to have maybe a little bit better perspective on, you know, what the families are going to be going through as they decide, you know, should this person be cremated? What's involved in that? You know, how does this process work? You know, it's not necessarily always our ballywick to um, to weigh in on this, but you know, people have questions, and I found it pretty interesting to to take a look at the book. Okay, thank you. I want to move on to the topic of polypharmacy because I don't want to take too much of your time this evening. First question that we always like to ask is: If you had to write a Wikipedia style summary of polypharmacy, what what would that sound like? It's easier said than done. So I have sort of a layman's uh, definition for polypharmacy, and it goes something like this. Too many medications that aren't aligned with the patient's goals of care and or are inappropriate is a definition of a hot mess. (laughs) And too many is a little bit subjective because where do you want to draw the line? Does polypharmacy occur when you have four medications or more or five medications or seven medications? So it's hard to just pick a number and say that's polypharmacy. I think you need to add some some qualifying um, factors to it, such as whether or not it's inappropriate, whether or not the patient is able to actually adhere to the regimen, or perhaps the regimen is too complicated for the patient. So those are all factors that I think go into defining polypharmacy, but at its very core, it's anything that would be inappropriate for the patient. So that could be as as few meds as one med. I wanted to just kind of lay out some terms that I feel might come up on the show tonight. The other one that goes along with polypharmacy, kind of the yin-yang, is would be deprescribing. I think that one's kind of intuitive, right? Taking medications away that are probably unnecessary or that might be causing side effects. Can you talk a little bit about what a prescribing cascade is? Yeah, and and maybe before I jump into the prescribing cascade, just to touch on deprescribing, because I think that's a term that's becoming far more in vogue right now. And what I like about deprescribing is it takes what is a difficult definition in polypharmacy and makes it action-oriented. So it it shows that there is a process that you can go through by which you can remove medications. And the prescribing cascade, as you alluded to, often occurs in patients where they may have been started on a medication, had a side effect from that medication, which results in the addition of another medication. And it then cascades and moves forward, and they get a collection of medications that may have initially had an indication, but are also then being used to treat some of the side effects of other medications. So you see that commonly in older adults where they're on lots of medications, and it would be another sign that, you know, again, this is a person that may have polypharmacy and would warrant some deprescribing. So 
So, Sean, you said something I don't quite understand. I think you used the word stop. You said stop medications. What do you mean by that? I, I think you know, Stuart. Yes, I know. It's supposed <laughs> yeah, to be a little snarky. <laughs> because we, we never do that. You know, when, when we talk to the... Well, I don't want to say, say we never do that. But oftentimes in our, in, in, in our um, training, we're, we're taught, well, X treats Y. So at what point do you, do you say, um, okay, well, what medica- medications can we stop and when? And, and this is something dogmatically different than the way that we train our, our, our residents and our students. So maybe I can uh, draw upon a, a family that I just saw today. It was a 79-year-old husband and wife, and I was asked to go out to see them because they were struggling with managing their medications. So we ended up stopping about 10 medications today, which is more than I typically would like to do. But the reason that we actually stopped medications is we identified some where there were safety concerns. And I'll give you just one example of it. This is a, uh, the gentleman was on Flomax or Tamsulosin, and he was taking it twice a day, which is more than the recommended dose. And his daughter was trying to do the best that she could managing the meds and had put him onto a pill box recently. And within the last two weeks, he was having multiple falls. And he was falling because now his blood pressure was low because he was put back on a medication that he hadn't been taking previously. And his daughter was trying to do the, again, do the right thing by getting him back on his meds. And in fact, she created an iatrogenic problem. So we stopped the medication because it's actually causing harm. So in some cases, you can see that there's a clear cause and effect and, and there's a condition where the medication may be causing harm. And that's, that's the easy cases to stop. The harder cases are where you may have been treating a condition for a period of time and we're no longer sure whether or not we're still achieving that same goal of care with the medication. And does that goal actually align with what the patient is looking for from their medications? And that becomes a a longer conversation and, and more difficult to have. But ultimately, I think that's the direction that we need to be going when we talk about deprescribing with patients is to make sure that they understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish and they're part of that decision because otherwise it's really hard to get people to take their meds. I was going to, I just, Sean, I wanted to ask in the capacity in which you're seeing a patient and, and deep prescribing say 10 medications, how do, how do patients happen to come across you? How, and what capacity are you sort of assisting with this medication management? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, so that's a great question. So we have a, a program right now where this is a grant-funded initiative in one of the towns in Connecticut through our Center for Healthy Aging. And the families and or patients or citizens can reach out to the center for a variety of reasons. And they know that uh, within the center, they have access to a pharmacist. And that would be me or one of my colleagues. So if they call the center and they have questions about medications, these are people that would then be eligible to have a pharmacist home visit. And usually what ends up happening is they have lots of medications and they're confused or they have um, recently been hospitalized and they have questions, and that will be what triggers the home visit. In other aspects of what I do uh, through our integrated health network and our accountable care organization, we actually will be a little bit more prospective and look for patients who have really complicated medications and then try to team them up with our care managers or, in some cases, the other pharmacist or myself will go out and do a visit if uh, we determined that it would probably be the best course of action. Oh, so you proactively identify patients who might be uh, at risk for bad outcomes from polypharmacy? 
<clears throat> Correct. It's uh, a little harder to do because, uh, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here in, in that when we just took a look across 100,000 of our patients, we had 17,000 that were on 10 or more medications and 7,000 that were on 15 or more medications. So right now there's only two pharmacists that are able to go out and do these types of visits. So we have to figure out how to get the information back to the providers so that they can tee up a discussion around polypharmacy and deprescribing when the patient comes in the clinic. And right now that's a struggle because, as you know, people don't really have a lot of time to engage in a conversation around deprescribing, and that takes oftentimes more than 15 minutes to do and to do effectively. Something that I came across, so in 2016 there was a JAMA internal medicine article. It was by Cato et al., and basically they looked... 2005 versus 2011, and they saw that uh, about 36% of people between 62 and 85 were on five or more drugs. But if you added in over-the-counter medications and dietary supplements, that number jumped up to like 67% of patients. And in a, there was an editorial kind of responding to that article, and it was talking about like hypothesizing ways that we can improve prescribing, and they were talking about a living medication list. Is this something that you've heard about before? And how, how can we make medication lists better, I guess, is the core of my question here for these patients that are just on 15 meds, 10 meds. So I, I am familiar with the article and I'm familiar with the term. I think that one of the things to consider also that I believe came out in that article is that the number of people that are younger than 65 who are now experiencing polypharmacy is also increasing. So this isn't just a problem with seniors. And how do you make the the list be as accurate and effective as possible? The first step is to make sure that people actually have an accurate list and that you have either the office staff or somebody uh, trying to curate what exactly the person is taking and that they take that list with them. Now, I'm a bit of an optimist here in that I think we are getting closer with technology to being able to seamlessly see medications that have been adjudicated and dispensed through pharmacies across different EMRs and across platforms. And I think we're going to be able to have in the very near future the ability to have really, truly a living list of medications that follows the patient and is accurate. But until we get to that day, you have to always make sure that we're stopping and asking because there's still things that fall outside of what might be captured within our data systems. For example, if somebody pays cash for a prescription, that's often not captured. Or if they're buying over-the-counter medications, those are often not captured. And as we know, in the article, you know, that's an important source of, of the polypharmacy and can lead to, to potential problems. So, Sean, one of the things that I do oftentimes in my PCM notes is that I separate the med list out into different categories like cardiac meds, pulmonary meds, gastrointestinal meds, in order to help to delineate what these meds are used for. And it helps me to identify where there might be med-med interactions or maybe duplications as well. And that's something that I, I, I recommend to my residents, but I, I don't know if there's any, any evidence to suggest that, aside from anecdotal evidence to say that, hey, this is a tidied up med list to help me to understand, kind of navigate what the meds are. Um, ha- have you ever seen that or recommend that in order to help to really di- dive down to what medications they're using and what they're being used for? 
So that's one of the first steps that I actually go through uh, when I start to figure out what somebody's taking is I try to group the medications by category. And that actually came out of the way I was trained to think about appropriateness. Okay. I had the very good fortune of training under Joe Hanlon, who developed the medication appropriate, appropriateness index. And the first question on that is, what is the indication for the medication? So, you know, I start to look for groupings of medications, and I'll do it by conditions. So we'll do cardiac medications, and we'll put together what all of the indications for those, because the first thing in identifying polypharmacy is, is to make sure you have an indication for every medication. If there's not an indication, it is, by definition, polypharmacy. And I think that is a good way for trainees to also start thinking of, you know, how do you put these medications together so that they make sense? And that also leads nicely to sort of the next step in kind of assessing the effectiveness of the medication and looking at what are the monitoring parameters for those medications. Because when you start to think about heart failure, right, you want to know, you know, not only is, you know, if you're using a diuretic, you know, what does the person's CHEM7 look like, but, you know, what's their weight and what's their blood pressure and all those things all fall together. Uh, we can certainly link to the medication appropriateness index in the show notes. That way listeners can can visualize it for themselves. I wanted to I wanted to kind of jump into a case, a, a, a complicated patient from Cashlack Memorial, 80-year-old female, has some, some early dementia, CHF, CKD, AFib, diabetes, hypertension, just a bunch of things. She comes to see me for knee pain, which is what she's worried about. But I'm worried that I'm counting 22 medications and supplements total on her on the medication list. About 14 that I would say are daily medications that 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 she's actually taking daily, and about another seven or eight that are for symptom control. When you get these big complicated med lists like this, how many changes are you going to make? You kind of told us your approach. You're, you're using the medication appropriateness index, but how many medications or how many changes do you, do you think is a reasonable amount to make on a first visit? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. You know, as I said today, I stopped about 10 medications between two patients, and that was more than I would typically like to stop at any one given time. But we had an opportunity there to have strong oversight and follow through with an attentive family member and a good system to make sure that if there was a problem that they'd be able to get back in touch with me and the other members of the team. But in general, what I try to do is identify what is the major concern for the patient. And I like to do that in perhaps a little different way. I ask the patients, if I was to stop a medication today, which medication don't you want me to stop? And you can ask that question in a variety of different ways. But basically, I'm looking for what is their most important medication. And then similarly, I'll ask them, if you were to stop a medication, what would be the first thing you would want to stop today? So I try to identify the two bookends of prescribing. What's their most and least important medication? And that opens up a conversation around their goals of care, what's working, what may be causing a side effect, and what may be perhaps too costly for them to afford, or they don't really understand why they're taking it. And years ago, I actually did a study in the VA where I asked patients these questions, and then I asked their primary care providers to review their last note and to look at the meds that they were prescribing. And then I asked the providers to identify what they felt were the most and least important medications for their patients. And when I showed them the responses of their actual patients, not surprisingly, there was a lot of 
discord there between what the patients identified as most and least important and what the providers identified as most and least important. So it, it, there's a gap. And if nothing else, this opens up an opportunity for a conversation around, you know, are you taking your meds? How are you taking them? Are you having trouble managing, managing your meds? I mean, how often do we ask, do you have somebody that's helping you to manage your medications? Because all of that plays into the ability for somebody to accurately and reliably take what could be a very complicated and dangerous medication regimen. And once we've gone through that, then I will try to prioritize of the medications that they're on, are there high-risk medications? And maybe these are medications that are identified as high-risk by criteria such as the Beers criteria from the American Geriatric Society, or their medications that we know may lead to emergency department visits, such as your hypoglycemics or DIG or warfarin, your antiplatelet agents. So you look for where the high ticket items are, and then you try to minimize that risk in that patient. So it sounds like you use a little bit of a model of shared decision-making, which we're, I think we're all big fans of. And then you, you also mentioned sort of using the, the beers criteria to, to identify um, potentially risky medications. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you use that and, and how that works? So the beers criteria is something that is uh, updated right now about every three years from the American Geriatric Society. And it lists medications that are identified as high risk in the elderly by expert consensus. They usually are medications where there's very good evidence to suggest that they're going to be harmful if you use them, even in recommended doses. Oftentimes, these medications cause problems like confusion, delirium. Uh, a very good example of medications that we're all familiar with would be anticholinergic medications. You know, the medications that make you blind as a bat, mad as a hatter, hot as a hare, dry as a bone, red as a beet, you know, those type of things. <clears throat> so those meds in older patients are known to be deliriogenic, may increase the risk for falls, um, and in some cases can cause bladder retention and other untoward side effects. So they would be um, high-risk medications and ones that we would try to avoid. So I use that list to help guide um, in identifying medications. There's also um, drug disease interactions that are more common in the elderly and drug-drug interactions that are also more common in the elderly. One of our most recent episodes, we actually, we spoke with Dr. Dukoski from University of Florida about dementia and, and he was highlighting on that episode that anticholinergic medications, while he wasn't convinced that they necessarily cause dementia, he was convinced that they cause impaired cognition and that if patients who, who have dementia or have memory impairment are taking them, that we should be trying to convince them to pull these medications off because that their, their mental status might improve just by doing that alone. So, And some of the big ones I see commonly are the bladder medications, um, oxybutynin and um, sulfenacin, which I think is Vesicare. And, and, and then uh, diphenhydramine, a lot of people, because they can get their hands on that over the counter. Or even Zantac or yeah. H2 blockers as well. And that was one, looking at the beers list, that was one that I, I hadn't really thought of uh, as being that anticholinergic, ranitidine. Uh, yeah. Sean, wh what are your thoughts on, on the H2 blockers? Are they, are they as bad as the H1 blockers or, or should, we be, should we be as worried about those? You know, they, they can be, and especially because some of them are renally eliminated, so they can accumulate in older adults. And I think that adds uh, sort of a, a secondary um, a 
effect to to the uh, medications. And the other thing is we don't, in many cases, people don't have as much experience using them like they used to mm-hmm. because the default position is now to use proton pump inhibitors, yeah. which you know, we're now learning may have more side effects associated with those class of medications as well. But you know, back to your comment about the anticholinergics and dementia and delirium, you know, there's some tantalizing evidence that these may actually change the brain and you know put you at greater risk of you know developing dementia. I think that science is still developing and it's worth watching, but we know that in general, the more anticholinergic medications you get in an older patient, whether it's by giving a particularly potent anticholinergic or the cumulative effect of multiple anticholinergic medications, that's going to lead to confusion and delirium, and it's generally not going to be a very well-tolerated medication. And you specifically mentioned the bladder medications, and you know, as a class of medications, this is one that has an awful lot of advertising behind it, and in general, these are far less effective than any of the advertising uh, that that's out there claims they should be. I I uh, I don't have the exact numbers to quote, but one of uh, uh, a colleague was telling me that he is he's on the P and T committee that sort of uh, d- decides which drugs are going to be approved, and he was saying that those bladder medications on on maybe like a seven or ten point scale might might make a change of like one and a half points. That it's really a pretty modest and and they don't work, and that's for patients they work for. Um, they don't work for everybody. <laughs> you know, I think that that's a fairly accurate statement that they may decrease the number of incontinence episodes by perhaps one a day. So while that might be significant for some individuals, they're generally not overly significant as a class, and the tolerability becomes a problem for a lot of patients. It's tough. I, I go back to the medical letter as a, a source of um, information about these meds when they first came out. And the medical letter consultant said none of them are as advertised. So it was a pretty strong uh, wording that came out from the medical letter about the entire class. I want to bring this back to this whole cascading iatrogenesis that you brought up earlier. In the, in the family that I just saw today, this uh, woman was... She's mildly um, demented and at one point was on Aricept and started complaining of having urinary incontinence, which is a known side effect of using cholinesterase inhibitors. So again, here's the example of a medication that you're using to treat one condition. And it may not be that terribly effective of a medication in the first place, but it's causing a side effect. Now, fortunately, she had a geriatrician that recognized this and said, well, we're going to stop the medication, and her urinary incontinence got better. So it, it, you know, I think it was a great example of you know, where cascading iatrogenesis can occur. Yeah, I actually had a patient very similar to that, except the family was very insistent on continuing the Aricept. And so we were kind of stuck in this, this quandary, what do we do at that point? And we ended up starting an antispasmodic, but trying to dose it appropriately. I don't, want, I don't want to say appropriate, there's no appropriateness in this, but dose it in, in order to get the maximal effectiveness. Because the Aricept was keeping her more, I don't want to say normal during the day, but at least uh, she was able to go out with the family without having a, a lot of uh, outbursts. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, there's, there's a give and take with all of this. And ultimately what it came down to is that we stopped the Aricept and the antispasmodic because neither of which were providing much significant benefit. Right. In that situation, you wonder whether or not you were robbing Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. I wanted to move on to talk about the frail elderly and, and those more towards the end of life and, and kind of get a little bit more into de-prescribing. So this patient, this case I had given, um, let's say, so this was an 80-year-old, she has diabetes, she had some mild dementia. Let's say we're five years down the line. She's been on a statin because of prior history of CAD and uh, has had prior cardiac events, but now 85, frail, has, has dementia. Have you run into problems and how do you handle this, the statins? We don't have evidence in 85-year-olds that this is going to be effective. And, you know, again, you're potentially introducing um, risks when the benefits may have already been achieved. And you're not likely going to continue to accrue the benefit at this point. We just don't have the evidence to say that, yes, we're making somebody's life extended and longer, and that's going to be adding quality to those years when we may actually be causing some myalgia and weakness in proximal muscles, maybe increasing the risk for falls. And those are outcomes that we don't want in an 85-year-old. So until there's better evidence, then I think we need to be a little bit more judicious in the use of these agents in our frail elderly, especially those older than 80. I know there was a study, I think in the past two years, it's in, it's in a prior episode we did on cholesterol with uh, uh, patients with one to one year of life expectancy, and they saw, they saw no difference in that one. Yeah, so that was a, a bit more of a clear-cut population where you're dealing with end-of-life palliative patients, mm-hmm. and it became easier for you to justify stopping it. And again, it's... It, it's overcoming the clinicians, I think, concern that we're taking a medication class away that has such evidence behind it in younger population. Why can't we just extrapolate that into, you know, in older population? But I'd ask, what is the treatment goal? You know, what are we targeting here? And it's not very clear when you have somebody who is frail and is older than 80 and is now at risk for much more of the medication-related side effects than they may have experienced when they're in their 60s. I wanted to ask your thoughts on treatment of insomnia, uh, particularly in the elderly, older, I'm saying over 75 years old and lots of comorbidities or frail. A lot of these patients are complaining of sleep problems and definitely the, the non-benzodiazepine hypnotics are on the beers list. Right. What, do you have any good workarounds for this? So I have a workaround that I use for patients, and I got this from a geriatrician that I worked with who is board certified in sleep uh, physiology. This is a recommendation that I can't say is necessarily as scientifically valid, but I like it because it doesn't cause any harm and doesn't cost anything. So he would always uh, suggest to patients that you use the morning hours between 9 and 11 to go outside when you can and get some bright sunlight and take, take your walk at that point because that would help to make sure that your circadian rhythm would be in train to help you sleep when it gets dark. And I use that, and I, and I have to say, I sell that. I sell that to patients as an inexpensive, healthy thing that they can do on a daily basis that will help them get a better night's sleep because oftentimes, like you said, they have so many issues that may be preventing them from getting a good night's sleep that sleep just becomes the proxy to everything else that's wrong. So 
So my first attempt is always non-pharmacologic. My second attempt is then to make sure that they're not taking medications that have built-in um, insomnia. Uh, so things that might be causing you to be more alert or awake or not sleep well. And embedded in that is to make sure that people are taking their meds at the appropriate time. A hmm. uh, great example is, uh, you know, time and time again, I have patients who are taking their um, Lasix with dinner. Now, Lasix stands for last six hours. Right. So it's going to last till midnight, and you're going to be up having to go to the bathroom. That's going to keep you from going to sleep. So I, I want to ask a question similar to Lasix. Uh, oftentimes I'll tell my patients to take, if, if they're on an alpha blocker, to take that with dinner instead of taking it right before bed. Am I just fooling myself with that? I don't think that there's a problem with that, taking it before bed. Um, you know, the alpha blockers, if you're trying to minimize orthostasis and, and postural hypotension, that's a reasonable thing to do. I guess I would also, though, look at if you have a medication regimen and you could consolidate that to a once a day versus a twice a day, and it had to be that you got people to take their meds in the morning versus the evening, I would probably lean more towards that because you're going to have likely a higher rate of adherence to a once a day morning regimen than anything else that you could put together. So I wanted to kind of touch on sleep real quick. One another thing that that we tend to recommend is to use melatonin over the counter. Certainly, there's different formulations. What's your thought on using melatonin for sleep? So I think it's the three milligram dose is the more common dose, and that's super physiologic for right. anything that you would normally produce in the pineal gland, and probably more than you're going to need mm-hmm. in any given day. Whether or not it actually causes people to sleep is another question. It's, in many cases, how you actually present it to the individual. Right. Like if you're saying this is going to be a, you know, this is a good thing for you to try, and I think this can help you, and you know, this doesn't have a lot of side effects to it, then you have perhaps that placebo working for you, and somebody may actually find it beneficial. Most of the studies that I'm aware of use anywhere from 0.5 to 1 milligram of melatonin about an hour to 30 minutes before sleep. The one that I use oftentimes on the inpatient side is is one that shows that it reduces the incidence of delirium. It was published actually in 2011 in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. Uh, it was a randomized controlled trial looking at 145 patients admitted to the hospital. Um, however, oftentimes when you go to the when, when you go to the your, your local pharmacy, what I've been seeing lately is actually five milligram tablets and ten milligram tablets, which I think is just insane. There's one trial I've got saved that shows a ten milligram tablet uh, up to twelve hours later has about ten thousand times a normal uh, super uh, uh, physiologic threshold, which is just crazy. Exactly. And, you know, how much of that could just be achieved by some nice bright sunlight in the morning? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. Unless you're living in uh, Alaska, that you have to have some sad lights. Well, there, there you go. You might need to actually have some, some melatonin in your life. Right. The recommendation on medications like Ambien and the other, other sleep, sleep aids, are you ever using those in patients uh, over 75 or patients who are have have dementia or any kind of frailty? Yeah, I don't. Inst- I have not started those medications. Um, you know, they're all high risk medications. I think they come with a lot more baggage than they're worth. 
The, if we had to use anything, I know that in the inpatient setting, the go-to medication would have been trazodone. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that supports that either, but that gets you around the high-risk medication label, and it's not a controlled substance. And I think that in doses of 25 to maybe 100 milligrams, oftentimes 50 milligrams, it can be a reasonable agent to try, but again, there's not a lot of great data around that medication, and it does have a longer half-life and may cause some some sedation that lingers into the to the next day. So, there is just no safe medication for sleep. Right. It's back down to that it's a proxy for something else that's going on, and it takes some detective work to try to figure out what it is. And in some cases, they're just not easy fixes to what's causing somebody to not sleep well. Stop texting your grandkids at 11 p.m. Right. I wanted to uh, just go in and kind of ask maybe uh, just a couple random questions towards the end here. Ooh, I like that. What, for patients with uh, CKD3 or CKD4, when we're worried about dosing of medications, which which equation do you prefer? So I'm... I'm um old school, I'll preface this that all the equations that are out there are, are only as accurate as the reference population that they studied. So, you know, with that being said, I like the Cockcroft and Galt uh, equation. And I, I do something maybe that's a little bit different with that. I recognize that these are imprecise calculations. And we may fool ourselves by getting a creatinine clearance that's been calculated that says somebody has uh, a creatinine clearance of 35.53 mils per minute. So whatever I calculate as a number, I add and subtract five, and that gives me a range. So I know that I have some flexibility here in any given day if their creatinine changes slightly to be within a range of prescribing. And I think that's maybe gives me a little bit of a pressure release on, in terms of, you know, trying to make this an overly precise calculation based on, you know, sort of an imprecise science. So I, I do like the Cockcroft and Galt, though. Mm, yeah. And keep in mind, there is a way of adjusting for whether or not you're female and you have to use ideal body weight. And so there's some caveats that go into it. But uh, I found that to be more reproducible um, than some of the other agents, or some yeah. agents, but other calculations. Yeah, just uh, one, one real quick one, maybe something that we can use by bedside. What tool do you, would you recommend that clinicians either use by bedside, let's say with, when you're sitting with a patient or sitting with their family to show that these medications have interactions? Is there any specific website, any specific app, any specific anything that you think would be beneficial on a computer screen to show them? If you have access, depending on your institution, you could certainly be able to use the drug-drug screening tools that are embedded in things like Micromedics and Lexicomp. Okay. And oftentimes, they give you a visual reference of uh, you know red light, uh, green right. light, if there's significant interactions. But maybe a more simplified, old-school way is to just use the pocket card for the beers criteria where you can show that this is something that says high-risk medications, and here's the medication that this person is taking, and here's a common interaction that occurs with that medication. It doesn't rely on the computer. It's not as fancy, but I think it still gets the same point across. And a question to kind of piggyback on that, for supplements... I, I frequently have patients asking me about turmeric and other supplements. Are you also looking those up in Lexicomp or Med, Micromedics, or is there another resource for or separate resource for supplements? Yeah, this one you may end up having to edit out. I was thinking about that, trying to figure out what would be the great 
source to go to. There was a natural pharmacopoeia guide that um, I used a while ago, but I don't, I don't really um, go digging too deep into the supplements. Truthfully, once I start having conversations with folks about it, we end up stopping a lot of that. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. So that's easy. You know, my, that's my default is there's just no real good evidence. And in fact, there's now more evidence that taking your vitamins may actually not do anything for you. You know, once we start adding up how much something is costing them and they realize it may not be adding value, right. then it makes a pretty easy decision to stop. About the only vitamin that I recommend, if I recommend it at all, is be Flintstones just for the for the iron. But that's just easier to take. Right. So iron, maybe B12 if you and need it. And the flavor. It. And the flavor. Yeah, exactly. Sean, can you give us your take-home points for on polypharmacy and deprescribing? De- I'm going to go back to something that Mike Steinman and Joe Hanlon put out in a, I believe it was a JAMA article a couple of years ago, and that is you can't manage what you don't know. So the first step is really to do an accurate med reconciliation. And then the second step, I think we have to take the time to ask our patients, how are you actually doing with this medication regimen? Can you manage it? Because if you're looking at a prescription regimen and you're thinking to yourself, man, this looks complicated, I guarantee it's complicated for the patient. You know, keep in mind, most of our seniors don't do online banking. You know, and you're asking them to then take control of a really complicated list of medications that have you know, potential um, requirements for different times of day, different dosage forms. And we haven't even touched the inhaled medications, which in and of itself, you need a PhD to use some of those inhalers. So I think, you know, really trying to make sure that we keep it as simple as possible. We streamline and make things as easy to use as once a day as we possibly can. And we inform um, patients to to keep a list with them, make sure that they understand what they're taking. And then it actually aligns with goals of care. You're going to find that those inappropriate meds start to drift away and the medication regimen becomes more manageable. And it's easier for somebody to actually use and you're going to get the results that we're looking for. So keep it simple would be my overall goal. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your time and teaching tonight. This has been really helpful to us in the audience. Well, it's been fun, and I hope uh, we'll we'll all live better through chemicals here and maybe a few (laughs) less for everybody. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Sean. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, Mm -hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our email mailing list where we will send you a monthly video newsletter and also a weekly uh, PDF copy of our show notes where you can get tools, tips, and tricks for your practice. So you can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Hmm. Also, send us your emails to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm here with Dr. Paul Nelson Williams right there. <laughs> yeah. You're really having a blast with this Skype cam, aren't you, Stuart? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm and Dr. Stuart. I, I, 
Oh, you're even taking away my moment to shine. Go ahead. <laughs> go, Stuart. Just go. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. Go ahead, Paul. Good night. <laughs> In disgust. Ha, 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 ha.